First Kings chapter 17 again this morning, and I didn't get as far on as I thought I would. The Holy Spirit arrested me here and there, and in this portion I will be back again on it, God willing, next week, and the week after that is Palm Sunday, and the next week is Resurrection Day. So the time's slipping in, but we're back at First Kings 17, and I want you to open your Bible and keep it open at this scripture. Now, I want you to come with me in your mind's eye to the outskirts of the ancient city of Samaria, 860 years B.C. I want you to try and figure a rough, rugged, hairy man with a goat's skin prophet's mantle wrapped round him descending from the mountains of Gilead. The dust from the dry city streets announce his arrival. He's an uncultured, untutored, unattended, unannounced. We don't know who his mother was. We don't know who his father was. We don't know what family he had. We don't know his occupation. We have no record of his birth, and we certainly have no record of his death, for he never died. As suddenly as he came, he just as suddenly disappeared. He's a mature man, about 40 years of age, and he's come from the hills, but he has been sent from heaven. He has a message burning in his heart and in his soul that he has to deliver. For years he has been praying and fasting alone away up in a place called Tishbe where the hamlets and houses were made with stones, where historians tell us that lions and bears and snakes stalked the land. It was part of that barren Gedara land. Its name is Gilead, which means rocky. One of the most inhospitable places in the land. And there's many things we don't know of this prophet Elijah, this mighty revivalist. But there are things that we do know. And this scripture and other scriptures tells us that he was a man of intercessory prayer. He had power in prayer to switch off or switch on the heavens. In his prayers, he strangled the economy of the nation of Israel for three and a half years. 
Second thing about him was he walked and moved and slept and ate in the presence of the God of Israel. The name Elijah, his name, his parents given to him was the Lord God Jehovah is my strength. The third thing about him was that he heard the voice of God to his soul and he obeyed it every time that he heard it, without exception, without rejection. He just got the word from God and he obeyed it no matter what it meant. And I want you to try to envisage him as he makes his way to the royal palace in Samaria. And he confronts the worst king and queen of Israel for 58 years. Ahab and Jezebel. His steps are heavy, his heart is sore, his mind goes back to the times when God blessed his people. When God opened the Red Sea to bring them out and give Abraham the promises of the land of milk and honey. Where God in his power brought them over the Jordan and rooted out the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites. When God delivered them the manna from heaven every day and the quails from the sea and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Now as he walks through this land bearded and shrouded with the garment of the prophet. All he can see is here and there signs all over the place. The God of Israel is dead. Those were erected by Jezebel, the ungodly painted wife of Ahab. Two calves were across the land, one in Dan and the other Bethel where the people were commanded to go and to worship. They had to worship the Baal of Astaroth, the god of Baal and the god of Astaroth. And they had to bow at the shrines of those calves and they had to cry out, Behold thy gods, O Israel, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. You couldn't have got any more lower or you couldn't have got any more offensive to the god of Israel. Every vestige of the Jewish life was in tatters. The synagogues were wrapped. The schools of the prophets were pulled down. The altars of sacrifices were removed and they were placed with incinerators where they offered the children on sacrifices to the god of Moloch. And this man, burdened in his soul, came down through the land His heart was heavy. Those who were supposed to be standing for truth were nowhere to be found, were told that they were hiding. And the false prophets that sat at Jezebel's table were ruling the roost in the land of God. Once he comes to the palace, he's ushered into the presence of royalty. There is no Protocol, there's no bowing, there's no talking. His face and his voice is like thunder. And he delivers the message that God has burned in his heart. And once he delivers it, God speaks to him again. If he wouldn't have delivered it, God wouldn't have spoke to him again. 
If he'd have turned back, God wouldn't have spoke to him again. He maybe got somebody else. But the Lord spoke to him again and he sent him to the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there and he was there for 13 months. And I want you to look at chapter 17 and verse 7. And it came to pass that after a while the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Sarephath, which belongeth to Sidon, and dwell there. Now there was no asking, would you like to go? What do you think would you go? The word came explicitly, powerfully onto him every time, here's where I want you to go, and he obeyed it. So he arose in verse 10 and went to Sarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And he said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for my, me and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first. And bring it on to me, and after make for thee and thy son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake unto Elijah. Two commands were given to this man. Go to the brook and be fed by the birds. Go to the widow and be fed by the barrel. And it's very important that I rub this in this morning for the modern generation of Christians. There would have been no protection, no provision, no blessing, no revival, no carmel, no victory over the false prophets if this vital command, the vital commands of God were not obeyed each time. Now don't you tell me this morning if he would have went north, south or west that God would have blessed him and sustained him. Well, he would in a way, but he was out of his will. Don't you tell me this morning if he would have went to some other house or some other widow that God would have sustained and blessed him and given the victory. No, sir. The way of blessing in God and with God is a step-by-step process. Now, we need to learn that this morning. He will not show us the second step until he's finished with the first step, and it wasn't until the brook dried up, and I mean dried up, 
And then he spoke. So you take heed this morning. If you're saved this morning and you don't obey the three commands of the Lord, then you don't expect to be blessed in the way that you should. If you disobey the command of the Lord to meet round the table, and I know it's not possible for some, if you disobey this command this morning and the command from the tank and the command to come into membership in the fellowship, don't you be expecting now to have the blessing of God or to see revival or see victory over the enemy. Don't you expect that now? Because the Lord has laid this down very carefully in his word. Don't be so foolish or gratuitous to think that you can disobey God and then be blessed. Oh, he'll give you food, he'll give you clothes, he'll give you petal for the car, but I'm talking about spiritual blessings and victory in your life. You wouldn't do that with your boss. If you got a new job in the morning and the boss said, you know, I have three things that I want you to do and I want to see how you do them and then we'll move on from there. And you didn't do any of them. And you only done one of them. And you only done two of them and you done it half-hazard. Do you think he'd promote you? Do you think he'd keep you on at all? Well, why would you do it with God? He went on the word to the brook and he was fed by the birds and he went with the word to the to the barrel and he was fed by the widow. He had to stay 13 months at the brook. And this man burning in his soul, but he had to sit still and wait on God. Do you know anything about that this morning? You see, there are two reasons, and let me say this, there are two reasons why the brooks, our brooks, dry up. First of all, because God does it. He does it here. And he can dry up the brook. He can dry up the job. And he can dry up the house. And he can dry up the money. And he can dry up in order to get your attention. In order to take you out of your comfort zone and lead you on to something else. Things can dry up. I remember when they started to dry up with me. And it was an awful experience. Things that are loved. Maybe it's, you dry up something in your church or something in your house or something in your job. But the second reason is this we can allow things to dry up ourselves. Maybe your brook has dried up this morning spiritually because you have abandoned this altar and the quiet time and the prayer meeting and your spiritual life has dried up. Boy, how you need in these days to keep in fellowship and keep close to the Lord or barrenness will come into your soul and dear knows where it will end. Your marriage will dry up if you don't work at it. Your finance will dry up if you don't budget. 
and many things will dry up. And the brook will run dry, but you'll have nowhere to go because you have no word from the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and I want to follow Elijah now into Sarephath for a little time that's left. The location that God sent him to. The town of Sarepta, as it's known in the Greek, was across the border from Israel. It lay between Tyre and Sidon on the coast of the Mediterranean. Elijah had to trek 100 miles from the brook across the land of Israel. By this time, it was come near halfways of the three and a half years' famine. Now, what he would have seen would have been complete decimation. God sent him to the most unlikely place that he would have ever thought of going or a journey he would have never thought of taking in the famine. He sent him to Jezebel's back door. Jezebel's father was the king of this country land. And remember, the king and all the men, king's men, were searching for Elijah night and day. But because he was in the will of God, he was surrounded by the presence and saturated with the presence of God that nobody could touch him. Touch not the Lord's anointed. And do thy prophets no harm. He was a safe, a Jezebel's back door. The Noah and his family were safe in the ark. Or the Lord Jesus in the womb of Mary. When you're in the will of God and you're walking according to the command of God, you're a safe. As you can be, nothing can touch you unless God allows it. The name Sarephath means smelting pot. That was the pot where they put the gold into to purge the dross out of it. There's a purging process going on in this man for it, as we often say, it's from bad to worse. It's from the brook and the ravens and the solitude of 13 months to a widow and a Gentile widow and a pagan widow. And this man was a loner. This was not a lady's man. Oh, the things God does to squeeze out of us anything that has to be squeezed out so that he can use us in his service. And he knows how to do it. scooping off the dross and purging and refining the life in order for that mighty hour and caramel. It's a process. Now you get that into your head this morning, you just don't arrive there overnight. 
And there were many things. This man's heart was boiling. He was ready for fight. And he wouldn't have understood what God was doing, taking him from bad to worse and taking him from the birds, the very dirty ravens feeding him to a woman now and her boy across the border from Israel. And maybe there's some of you here this morning and you're battling in your mind why God is doing this. Why has God led me this way? Why has God given this to my wife and given this to my husband? Why is this? But when you're in the will of God and you're walking in the presence of God, you just have to go as God says. He knows. He knows very well what's going on this morning. You might battle and you might argue. You have a good cause to some of you. Well, that'll not answer the situation. The will of God has to be done. He's preparing you, maybe, sir, today for something great in the future. And I would ask you this morning, get into the will of God and read the word of God and don't don't let God hinder your walk because of your disobedience. You should be able to say every morning, Lord, As I say to the Lord every morning, Lord, here am I now, whatever you want me to do today. As far as I know, there's nothing betwixt us. And then wait for the word. Wait for the word. There's two things that need to be said here. First of all, this. The famine and the drought did not only affect Israel. It affected the pagan, godless, gentle nation next door. And it was not their fault. Now get this, it was not their fault. It wasn't this woman's fault that she was dying and her son dying in a famine. It wasn't her fault. It was the fault of Israel. It was the fault of God's covenant people. It was the fault of them grieving and angering and turning their back against God. And as the church goes, so goes the world. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and when the salt loses its savor and the light goes out, then all around us is affected. Righteousness exalted the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. When Jonah, the servant of the Lord, disobeyed God and went down to Joppa and went down into the end of the ship and was heading for Tarsus, God threw a storm out on the land. But that storm not only affected Jonah, it affected the mariners and they lost nearly all their cargo. And they were battered up and down the Mediterranean in fear, crying unto their gods. It wasn't their fault. The fault lay with Jonah, the servant of God. And there's a lot of false lie at the church's door this morning. Just you hold on. 
Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ was crossing the sea in the, in the, in the storm to go to rescue the boy from Gadara, a mighty, the devil threw a mighty storm over Galilee. And the boat filled with water and the men scared and they cried unto God, Carest thou not that we perish? And the Lord got up and he calmed the storm, but to say it, there were other little ships. There were other little ships on the Galilee that day, and they were affected with the storm. It wasn't their fault. I preached on that one morning here, other little ships. We all get a rise on the big storm. We get a rise on the big boys. We get a rise on everything else. We need to get a rise on God. How often do we lovely children not suffer because of the sins of their parents? And divorce, separation, abandonment, child abuse, little children. It's not their fault. God help. How often do parents not suffer because of the sins of their children? Drugs and drink. Grieves the heart of a mother. Young man, if you're grieving the heart of your mother, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. This woman had trouble enough. She'd lost her husband. Now she's in a famine. She had no control over either of them. Now she's serving up her last meal for her and her son to die. That's what you said, we're going to die. All because the church had lost the way. All because sin in the nation of Israel had turned God against the people. You listen very tight to what I'm going to say, for I have prayed over this very much. God forbid that we would not cause some poor family because of our sin and our rebellion and our inconsistencies and our lack of testimony. God forbid. That it won't cause them to die. Now listen. God forbid that come May next that we don't have to beg at the feet of terrorists for our protection and for our preservation that killed our people. And if it happens, let me say to you this morning, don't blame the politicians. Don't blame the orange order, the black order, and the other order. Blame the church. 
A church that has lost the vision, lost the power, lost the fire, lost the anointing. And I'm saying to you men out there today, you pastors and ministers and elders, that gazed at science and let God out the window, I say to you, you're to blame. The fault of Brutus lies with the pulpit. And don't be crowing or shouting or parading or placarding or anything else. You have to take what's coming to you. Maybe God will deal with the Protestants for the way they dealt with the Catholics over the years. Wouldn't give them a job or wouldn't give them a house. And some of you hate them this morning. And don't you be expecting revival and don't you be expecting blessing. For as the church goes the world, and if we had the anointing and we had the power and we had the vision and we had the passion, we have lost our moral compass. Until the church gets right, judgment begins at the house of God. Some of you are full of bigotry this morning. You just take what's coming this morning. You know that some of us stuck on order after order after order and we'll put them first before the church. Let God speak to you this morning. Unless we get the house of God in order, unless we get repentance and brokenness, unless we get back into prayer and fasting and waiting on God, we're going to suffer. Do you know what you're saying this morning? Very well, I know what I'm saying. I've wrecked it out, wrestled it out before God at two and three and four o'clock in the morning if you want to ask my wife. I'm not here to be seen. I'm not here to please. This woman has nothing to blame, nobody to blame for the state of her child and herself going to die and no meal and no bread because of Israel. Second thing is this, do you think that Elijah relished the thought and looks forward to dwelling with the widow and her boy in this despised Gentile land? My dear friends, he did not, but he had no option. He had no option. There was no negotiating. There was no maneuvering. Elijah had no more say in where he'd go than Philip had when he was in Samaria in the midst of revival when God says, go out to Gaza Mountain. Elijah had no more say than Saul had when God says, go to the house of Ananias. He had no more say than when he said to Moses, go back to Egypt. And he stuttered and made excuses, but he had to go back. The location was Sarafath, and that was it. Now, I want you to watch this. I want you to look at verse 9. We'll come down to a close. 
There's an exclamation here that God showed me in, in verse 9, and I preached often from this portion. I never saw this. There's an exclamation in verse 9. Arise, get thee to Sarephath, which belongeth unto Sidon, and well there. Behold, I have commanded, now watch this, a widow woman there to sustain. He had already spoken to the woman. I don't know how long before, but he had already spoken into her ear, and she heard him. She said, I've commanded a woman. But I want you to watch this now. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Sarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow. Now that's different. This is coming in close now to her. A widow. The widow. There were many widows in Israel in those days. There were many widows in this land in those days. The widow. Now, what he's saying here, and you mothers, I, I hadn't much to say this, I thought I would, but we'll be back at this next week. What he's saying here, I want all eyes off the location. I want all eyes off the situation. I want all eyes off the prophet. I want, behold, that, take note, behold, I want your eyes on the widow now, as we come down to a close. On the mother. Pagan, dark, idolatrous woman. But here's the point. She trusted the Lord. He must have told her the exact place and time because it was evening. And there were many gates into these cities and towns. But he knew the gate, and he directed her to the gate. Now, I can't help thinking of the text of the Lord Jesus, the woman, and the story of the unjust judge, when he says, when I come, will I find faith on the earth, when I come back again. Elijah came in the dark hour. He come in the evening time. The storm clouds were gathering. But he found faith in a pagan woman who obeyed the command of the Lord and went to the gate. This was a divine appointment. If ever there was an ordained divine appointment, this was one. This is God working now in someone who's moving in the presence of God and someone who's in the will of God. I want to say a wee word now very seriously. To some of you young people, men and women, raking about cars and car parks, looking for a man or looking for a woman. And if you come to the barn looking for a man or looking for a woman, and that's the only reason you come, you'd be far better not coming. I lifted a paper not so long ago and I saw with this man. <laughs> this, this man was looking... He had a big advert in the big photograph up and said, looking for a woman. I, I must be naive. But it said GSH. I had to say something. What does that just GSH mean? And some of them, I don't know who it was, and I said, great sense of humor. 
That'll not be much good at three o'clock in the morning when the wee one's bawling his head out. We'll see whether there's a sense of humor then. <laughs> or she comes in someday with the big jeep and she's creased the side of it. Ho, ho. <laughs> Great sense of humor. An old boy in America used to say, an old holiness boy says, no matter where you prod me, he says, what will come out? What come out, Stephen? Honey. He says, no matter where you prod me, honey comes out. Well, I tell you, you wouldn't want to prod me too much. He, he says, amen. When you prod some of us, I'll tell you, it's not honey that'll come out. Divine appointments, you young men, you young women tonight. Pray, seek the Lord. And he will show you. Now, whatever he said to her, Go and get me a drink of water, she went. No argument, no nothing. But whenever he said, go and get me some, something to eat, some bread, some meal, that was a different story. Now, water would have been scarce, but she had some. But if she's going to give this man the meal and the oil. Either herself or the boy will have to do without it. Do you follow me? And if she does without it, the boy is going to have no mother. And the other way about, she's going to have no son. And here's a man of God supposed to be, and he's a man of God, of course he is. Here's the man of God. He says, give me your portion. Mm-hmm. My husband's dead. We're famine-stricken. This is the last meal, and we're going to die, and this man comes. He says, give it to me. I tell you, she was a good one. She was a good one. The crisis was fierce. This woman trusted in the Lord. Secondly, she cared for the family. She cared for the family. She was out. To the last moment. And the bread would have come to the sun quicker than to herself. The bread is gone and the oil is gone and we're going to die. She's in the dilemma. Can I tell you this as a close? The meal offering... 
in the scripture speaks of Christ, the bread of life, and many other things that we haven't time to deal with. The oil in the pot speaks of the Holy Spirit, and the two sticks speak of the cross. Once we come to the feet of Christ, once we gaze and feed upon the Savior, and once we are filled and saturated with the Holy Spirit of God, and once we recognize the cross and all its power and what it is, then that ends the argument. Because look at verse 15. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not. This barrel was never full, and it was never empty. I declare when she went out in the morning and put her wee hand down into it, her wee delicate famine-stricken hand, when she put it down into it and she gathered it up, she scraped the bottom. But when she went back the next day, there was still more. You see, God doesn't feed us out of our abundance because we have so much, we don't need him. And the margin reference says for one full year, the bar never wasted and the oil never failed. Will he fail you? Mohan, has he failed you? But of course, most of us know nothing about scraping the bottom of the bar. Sure we don't. Boy, I'll tell you some blessing when you scrape the bottom of the bar. There's nothing there for the morrow. when you take the day's portion out. But it'll be there. It'll be there. She trusted the Lord. She cared for the family. She surrendered all, just like the boy with the loaves. Give them over to him. Morning and evening, the manna fell. Every day, just enough for the day. The location, the exclamation, and the consecration. When she got down and surrendered all, then the Lord moved in. Do you know, we were speaking here on Wednesday night on the crown of rejoicing. I tell you, when this wee woman gets to the glory, and she'll be in the glory. Jesus said there were many Israels, there was many widows in Israel, but he sent them to none of them. He was finished with the land. He was done with the people until God, until something happened. He was finished with them until this man could see through what God was doing. And he told him to go and hide yourself. And when you get out of there, go to the ungodly. Don't go back. Don't go back near them. Friend, has he forsaken us this morning? 
Is he going to turn our land and our church over to the ungodly? There were many, there were many that tried to kill him after he said that in Luke 4. He said, there were many, there were many widows in Israel, but he sent them to none. He sent them to not one of them. And they couldn't handle this to an ungodly Canaan pagan woman. We Jews. Aye. Should have tried to kill him because he said that. He said the same about Naaman. He said there was many lepers in Israel, but there's none cleanse only Naaman to Syria. I tell you, we need to come down off our high horse. We Protestants will need to come down if that's what you call yourself, of your high horse. And you're marching and you're drumming and you're shouting and all the rest of it and you're placarding and protocoling and all the rest of it and not bring revival back. We've been this way before. She consecrated herself to the feet of the Lord. And I'll tell you, when she gets to the glory and she sees Elijah and she sees her boy and she sees the thousands saved in the revival, there'll be a crown of rejoicing for her. For only for he would have never got to Kiarman. Do you hear me? Only for her, he'd have never got to Carmel. And only for the old dirty ravens, he'd have never got to her. May God help us this morning. But you know the worst is yet to come for this family, and we'll see that next week. It was short-lived. Mind you, Borgen says, Old Spurgeon used to say that troubles come like a flock of birds. They don't come in ones and they don't come in twos. There's the biggest, there's the biggest trial yet for this widow in the loss of her son, and it wasn't the famine that killed him. We'll leave that to next week. And we'll ask the Lord to help us again. Let us pray. Thank you for your patience.